Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. And on the night she died, he, he went out looking for her. I think with the intention of killing her. There was some kind of fight in the, in the bar. He left, she left, went back to her friend's house. He turned up at the friend's house, kind of wormed his way in. There was another fight in the house. Not, not a, there was another argument in the house. So Emily left with him, thinking he was going to take her back to my parents' house, but he took her to his house. They had another argument, by all accounts. Um, it turned violent, he, he turned violent on her. And um, it, it ended with him putting his arm around her neck in a kind of chokehold and just strangling the life out of her. Welcome to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. For this last episode of Crimes NZ Season 4, I'm talking to Mark Longley, a longtime journalist and host of Death, a podcast about love, grief, and hope. In 2001, Mark's 17 year old daughter, Emily, was strangled to death. She was born uh, in, in 1994 or something, I think it was 1994. And I, I was 26 years old when she was born, and I, I was kind of unprepared for fatherhood. And this little baby burst into our lives. And, and like many fathers or many parents, I was just hit with this, this explosion of love. And I, it was just the most incredible time. And, and I had this little girl, and I thought, well, I'm going to make a good go of this. And Emily was this, was this uh, loving and warm kind of beautiful soul person in, in many respects. She was very kind of gregarious and outgoing and she had this incredible appetite for life. But she was also naughty. She was kind of mischievous, cheeky, very, very challenging, you know, kept me on my toes. And she was hard work to parent, but in a good way, mm. kind of, you know, like a, she was just she was just good fun to parent. And, and I learned a lot about being a father and being a man. And hopefully she learned a lot from me and, it was just this incredible journey we went on. But she was um, she was a beautiful, beautiful, loving, warm girl with an appetite for life. And, and you were good mates? Yeah, we were, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think kind of as we got older, as she got older, we, we were kind of like more mates than father and daughter. You know, we I, I really enjoyed being with her. I loved spending time with her. I loved spending time with all my children, but I just loved hanging out with her. It was just It was just good fun. And why was she in England? That's where she where she died. How did uh, she end up being in that country? Well, it was kind of typical of her. She she was obviously born in England, and so was her sister Hannah, and had a big had a strong connection to England. Every year, her and Hannah would go back to my parents' house over the over the what were Christmas holidays here. Mm. And um, I think in 2010. Emily, Hannah and I went, went back there for Christmas and Emily went ahead of me. Emily and Hannah went ahead of me because of the school holidays. Mm -hmm. And I arrived on Christmas Eve and Emily had heard about this college called Brockenhurst College from her friends. 
and she'd gone along to an open day and arranged an interview to see if she'd get a place there or while I was in New Zealand. So I arrived and she said, I've got this interview at this Brockenhurst College on January the 6th or something. So I thought, well, go along. And they won't accept her. They'll, they'll think she's some kid from New Zealand who's just got too many ambitions and, and they, won't, um, they won't take her. And so she went in for the interview and the woman came out and said, we'd love to have Emily at this college. You know, she's the kind of pupil that we'd like. So I thought, she's not going to go. We'll go back to New Zealand. She'll see her friends. She won't go. But no, she stuck with this idea of she wanted to go and study at Brockenhurst College. And, and I, I, I didn't want her to go. But she was going to live with my parents, which was a, a very familiar environment. Mm. And she had friends there. And it was, you know, it was, it was a really, really tough call to make. But she wanted to do that. And so we kind of let her do it. And, it, you know, it, it turned out to be the wrong decision. But I think for her personally, from what, what she got out of going to the college and what she got out of working and just being in England, she really kind of, she really benefited from that. Yeah, you say it turns out to be the wrong decision, but it sounds, she sounds like she made her own decisions and it would have been a heck of a fight if you'd told yeah. her she wouldn't. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she probably would have just got on a plane anyway and gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and... What happened the night she died? She she was out. Again, she'd done a typical Emily thing. She had told my parents she was staying with a friend for the night. They were going to stay and watch a few videos, but they ended up going to, to a, a local bar uh, in Bournemouth where they, where they were living. And she was in a kind of on-off relationship with Elliot Turner at the time, and, and there, there'd been a very kind of violent week leading up to that. And on the night... She died. He, he went out looking for her, I think with the intention of killing her. Um, he, they stayed at the wine bar. There was some kind of fight in the, in the bar. He left. She left, went back to her friend's house. He turned up at the friend's house, kind of wormed his way in. There was another fight in the house. Not, not a, there was another argument in the house. So Emily left with him, thinking he was going to take her back to my parents' house, but he took her to his house. They had another argument... By all accounts, um, it turned violent. He, he turned violent on her. And um, it, it ended with him putting his arm around her neck in a kind of chokehold and just strangling the life out of her. And she died in this room with him in, in, in England. Did, did you know anything about the relationship back in New Zealand, such that it was relationship? Did you know, was this guy on your radar? We knew a bit. She she met him just before her birthday on in, on February the twenty second, and she died on May the seventh. And we kind of knew this guy was hanging around, but she was a very attractive girl, and all yeah, for a long time guys had been hanging around, and so I just didn't really think much of it. Like guys would turn up at my house, and there was always some guy on the kind of kind of hanging around. And my, my parents met him. He was by all accounts very charming. He was very polite, like, like so many people like that are. He seemed quite stable. He, he seemed from what seemed to be a good family. Yeah. Um, Emily came back to New Zealand in April for a month. She'd been back in England a week before she died. And she kind of talked about him a bit, but she, she never liked having boyfriends. She was kind of a free spirit. She, she didn't like to be tied down to, to a boyfriend. She never had a serious relationship. So I didn't really pay much attention to it. She didn't tell me anything about what had been going on, which I kind of wish she had Yeah. now, but she decided not to. And 
she went back on May the 1st and, and a week later she was dead. How did you get the news? Um, I got it probably, I don't, there's no good way to get it, but no. I, I woke up at about 2 o'clock in the morning in New Zealand, 2 o'clock on Sunday morning, and I saw a missed call from my mother. And I thought, Emily's probably just gone out, not come home, so my mum's phoning up to rant to me about it, as she would. So I phoned and my father answered and he put a policeman on. And I thought, well, maybe it's a bit more serious, maybe she's got herself into some trouble. So the policeman, I can't really remember what he said to me, but he said, um, he told me that there was a body in the morgue and they thought it was Emily. And I... I don't remember too much. It was just, it was kind of a shock, but I, I just froze it out. I thought, that, that's, that can't be true. She was here a week ago. She was sitting on the same sofa. I was sitting on, so the next day I got on a plane, flew to England, and I was just kind of thinking, this is not, this isn't true, this hasn't happened. I'm going to get there and, and, and it won't be her. So I got off the plane and it's kind of in this daze, it was just, it was very odd, and, and I got my brother picked me up. We drove straight to the morgue, um, and the, the same policeman met me at the morgue, and he took me into a room, and there was a window to another room. And he said, in a minute, the light in the other room's going to come on, and there's a body on a bed. And when you feel comfortable, you can walk into the room. And the light was, just came up slowly and I looked through the window and, and, it, and it, it was Emily and she looked like she was asleep. And, you know, I mean, any kid, any parent, she, she just looked like she had done a thousand times when I'd come, come to wake her up in the morning. Uh, and I thought, she's just asleep, you know, she's just asleep. So I went into the room and, and all the while I was thinking, she's going to sit up in a minute and she's going to laugh and she's just some kind of practical joke she's played on me. So I touched her face, and it was just um, it was just cold, like a a really horrible cold feeling. And I just thought, you know, that that's when it hit me that she's dead. And it was just it was like everything came crashing down. It was just everything that you think is is what you are. You know, everything you think. It just it's like all the walls just came crashing down. It was just the most horrific moment. Thanks for telling the story again for us today, by the way. Um, so he, tell me about the police investigation. So th they... We didn't know much at this point. Emily had been found dead in someone's room. The, the police thought it was murder. She died in, in his bedroom. Um, the family the next day kind of found her body. There was a whole lot of stuff going on. They didn't call an ambulance for an hour or so. And the, the police thought it was murder, but there were a few big links missing. It wasn't obvious how she, he'd, she'd been killed. And, and there was no kind of... There was no confession. All, all they had was a body and a, a suspect. So they, they kind of led this slow investigation. They didn't really tell us much about it because they were... I'm not sure if they were trying to protect us or protect the case, but they bugged Elliot Turner's house... And that, that really gave them the damning evidence. They, they heard him and his parents discussing how they were going to cover this up, what they were going to do. He, he was very in control of the situation, so he would, um, he would tell his mother what to say to the police, tell his father what to say to the police. There was some very damning evidence, and they, he didn't admit to it, 
but he kind of admitted she made me really angry. I lost control, didn't know what I was doing, except all this kind of stuff. But what, what came out of that was a very manipulative, aggressive person that Elliot Turner was, you know, really nasty. And you, you got a strong sense of, that he was a nasty piece of work. Was there anything that you discovered about his behaviour prior to that night, uh, warning signs or other violent, threatening behaviour? Yeah, there was a lot. Yeah, yeah, it was so bad that when the... Um, in the first day of the trial, the, the, the prosecution outlined their case and it included all of the, the behaviour leading up to the death. And this was from Elliot Turner taking Emily's phone texting all, the, all her male friends that Emily didn't want to see her, see them anymore. He would hack her Facebook account to keep tabs on her. He would follow her around town. He would go to her workplace to make sure she was working when she said she was working. It was really very, very controlling to start with. And then it became violent. He would, he would quite often hold her up by the throat with his hand, which is a, which is a classic abusive tool because yeah. it's, you know, if you're more powerful than someone else, you're kind of rendering them helpless if, you're, if you put your hand around their throat. He was, he was physically violent to her. One night he went out with a hammer looking for her, telling other people he was going to kill her. So it was this, this long build-up of violent behaviour that, that kind of no-one took seriously, which really upset me because I thought if they had, she'd still be alive today. And that's, you know, it's really hard to lose a child and think if someone had done something, they'd still be alive today. I was speaking to Mark Longley about the death of his daughter, Emily. Here's some audio from 24th of April 2012, and this is as the trial is underway. As BBC reporter Tom Hepworth talking to then Morning Report presenter Simon Mersep, and the British court was told how Turner threatened to kill Emily on several occasions during their short relationship. Opening the case for the prosecution today, Timothy Mosley QC told Winchester Crown Court that Mr Turner believed that Emily Longley had been unfaithful to him. He said that he was threatening, aggressive, violent and controlling and possessive towards her. He told friends, for example, that he'd kill her if she was unfaithful and smash up any man who spoke to her. Now, Mr Mosley uh, told the jury of uh, 11 men and one woman that Elliot strangled her after an argument at his parents' home following a night out. But he told police that she kicked him and grabbed him by the throat in that fight. And Mr Turner uh, then says that they eventually went to sleep, but when he woke up the next morning, she was lying next to him, dead, with her arm draped over his chest. And the court heard uh, evidence from uh, to suggest that the prosecution believes the parents helped cover up the crime. Indeed, the, the prosecution alleged that uh, Elliot's parents, Lee and Anita Turner, delayed calling the emergency services for up to half an hour when they discovered that she died. For example, uh, Anita Turner uh, had uh, held a mirror over Emily to see if, the, if she was breathing. She wasn't. Uh, she then, uh, the prosecution alleged, made a series of calls to her husband who was at work. He's a jeweller. Elliot Turner worked for him. And it was half an hour before, they, uh, before the emergency services were alerted. It must have been difficult to fathom the idea of Turner's parents being involved in an apparent cover-up. Yeah, it was. And, and, you know, one of the things that really upset me, that they, he spoke about that in the... It was actually an hour between Elliot Turner's mother seeing Emily was dead and them calling an ambulance. And that really upset me because I thought, you know, even... She's dead. You know, give her the dignity of having someone deal with the body. Don't leave it lying there while you concoct your stories and try and get your stories straight. You know, at least just give her the dignity of 
having the coroner come and take her away. I, just, it, I found it really distressing that Emily's body lay there for an hour. Have you, got we, your, have you got your head around it? Is it just protecting your son at all costs? I think, I think it was. You know, he was he was very he was very dominant in that family, very manipulating. But you know, I would think I, I think the outcome is is worse than if they just come straight. If they just called the police, if they'd been open and honest, he probably would have got less jail time. And, and they, they certainly wouldn't have... They went to prison for, for two years as well. They wouldn't have gone to prison. Did they? Mm. Did you ever get any correspondence from them? No, I didn't. But during the during Elliot Turner's trial, um, he was obviously in police custody, but they used to wander around the courtroom. And so we would... I'd walk past them daily. You know, I was in the toilet once. He came in you know, next to me and I was kind of thinking... <laughs> I wonder what would happen if I just told him how I feel. His, his mother, I think his mother firmly believes to this day that it was Emily's fault that, that she drove Turner to do this. I think she can't admit that her son was a monster. And the case clearly got a lot of coverage in the media here and in the UK. Did you feel that they covered the story in a respectful manner? Um, not to start with, no. I thought it was pretty poor. I don't know if you remember the the, the early reports that Emily had been... She was a wayward youth who'd been sent to England because she had a drug and alcohol problem and she was out of control and I, I couldn't handle her. And So we'd sent her to live with my parents and, and, it, and then there was... People were saying she died of a drug overdose, she died of an alcohol overdose. It was all... you know, No-one ever asked me why she'd gone to England, which would have been simple. Mm. And I could never understand why I would... Why would you send an out-of-control teenager to live with a couple of... <laughs> with my grandparents... Who were ill-equipped to deal with that, mm. but uh, I, I thought it was pretty poor. There was some lazy journalism to start with, but I think once Turner got arrested for murder, it, it changed and everyone became a lot more respectful then. And certainly during the trial, the coverage there was um, there was I'm not sure if Art Rayings even heard anyone in there. I can't remember, but there was Garth Bray from TVNZ and Melissa Davies or Chan Green now from TV3, and they were both excellent. They kind of went through it step by step with us. You're still a journalist, you still work in the news, and um, do, do you think about the way that we cover trials, we, the media, cover, cover, cover trials, and, and does your own experience affect the way you think about families of victims in that coverage? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it made me a better journalist. And, and during the Grace Mullane trial, I worked quite closely with the people who were covering it for, for us, Kind of what you know, how to approach them, what's respectful, um, and I, I think as journalists we get caught up with the story, and we often forget there's people here, uh, and particularly in a murder case, you know, we like Grace Mullane's family, we flew over to the other side of the world, we spent four weeks in a court. It was the most, after Emily's death, was the most draining thing I'd ever done, and and after the verdicts, I had to go out and face the media, and it was there was quite a lot of media there, and it was. Everyone's firing questions at you. It's hard. You know, you're drained. Um, you're, you're pleased that he's gone to prison, but it, it really makes no difference because it doesn't bring Emily back. And, and I, just, I just think we, we need to remember that there are people here who are often exhausted and have been put through the mill and, and emotionally exhausted. And if they don't want to speak to you, well, just kind of <laughs> give them that. So Turner was... Uh, 
was sentenced to a life sentence, a minimum non-parole period of 16 years. And we have yeah. some more audio here from May 2012. Uh, so I guess this is a year after the event, after the death. Uh, it's another report across with RNZ's morning report presenter at the time, Jeff Robinson, and journalist Ben Ellery. And the British judge, Justice Dobbs, told Turner to stop thinking about Champagne, Bentleys and women and instead concentrate on why he was now serving a life sentence. I know you've covered a number of murder trials. Is this the sort of thing a judge would, would usually say to, to somebody convicted of, of, of a crime like this? Well, actually, no. It was, um, it was quite incredible, the words that she used. Like you say, I've covered many, many murder trials, and, and I've never heard a judge, uh, and this is a high court judge, you know, a woman with, uh, with years and years of experience, but she absolutely gave Turner both barrels. And, and, you know, it's obviously, you know, been a very emotional trial and, and, and you could see what, what having justice for Emily meant to the family when she did. There must have been some satisfaction having the judge speak to him like that. She was awesome. Yeah, she said what we were, we were feeling. Yeah. You know, she, um, she was very, very powerful in her words and yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Were you worried when you heard that uh, Turner was going to be appealing his sentence? I wasn't. They they expected him to appeal, um, and there was an area of the case that apparently was technically challengeable. So I wasn't surprised. It was a it was a pain that we had to fly back and see him in court again. But but when when he was sent back to prison, he had exhausted all his avenues. Then so he was back for he was going for life, and so it. The, that was nice. Yeah. It was nice to have it finally closed. After three years, we didn't have to think about Turner again. And you won't. He's in jail now. Um, I think I read somewhere that when he appeared at the appeal, he looked like he looked like jail had changed him. Prison yeah, yeah. changed him. Yeah, he won't be having a good time in jail. No. You know, and I'm I'm not vindictive towards him, but I hope every day it's hard for him. You know, I, I hope he learns his lesson in there. Me too. What have you learned about violence and particular violence against women? It's not good. It's too. It's too. We we go. We use violence too easily. We're we're not just in New Zealand. I think across the world, you know, violence is seen as an answer. I've also learned that if you're violent, that's your choice. A lot of times, like Elliot Turner said, that Emily made me angry. She made me do it. But if you're going to lose your temper and be violent. That's your choice. That's something you have to deal with. If something annoys you, um, you know, just saying it annoyed me is not, not a good enough excuse. You need to deal with that some other way. You, you, we, can't just be, we can't just be using violence. And, and also, you know, violence doesn't solve anything. It just, it's, it's, not, the, it's not the answer. There's much better ways of, of sorting things out. Um, and, and, you know, I, I didn't know this kind of abuse went on. I'd lived a sheltered life. I didn't know that men were so violent in relationships to women. And when I saw this, when this was outlined to me with Emily and how no-one took it seriously, I thought, well, if I don't know that, there must be other people who don't know that. And so I, and, and I got talking to other people who, who had been either experienced it or knew someone who'd experienced it, and they just they used to say I didn't see the signs. So I thought... We need to raise awareness about those signs. You yeah. know, lots of people miss them. And, and it is actually, if someone 
puts their hand around their partner's throat, that is actually serious. You know, that, that, that should be taken seriously. It shouldn't be just dismissed as he's drunk or that's just the way he is or, or, or she was asking for it. You know, that, that, that is a serious action. That, we need to take that seriously. And those, you mentioned some of those warning signs as well, the signs, um, examples of power and control, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, there's, there's that as well. You know, the, you often see it. Um, the man is, it will, will, will basically control everything. They'll control the money, they'll control where the woman goes, whether she works. You know, that, there's, there's a lot of power and control. And, and, and the, these are signs as well. If you're, if you're not seeing a friend of yours because she's, she's gone on a new relationship and you're not seeing her anymore, that's kind of a warning sign. Mm. If he's there every time you see her or he's tagging along every time you see her, that, that's a warning sign. The, the, these are ways that power and control are used and, and, and they should be taken seriously. And really my message is, is, has been if you ignore them, it's going to end up in the same way that Emily ended up. And, and, and once the thing with when I go back to seeing Emily's body, I suddenly realised there was nothing I could do about this situation. Mm-hmm. You know, this wasn't a school problem where I could go and see the headmaster. It wasn't falling out with a friend. I, there was nothing I could do about this. I couldn't bring her back to life. I couldn't right the wrongs that had happened. And, uh, you know, as a father, I found that really hard to take. I couldn't yeah. help her. I couldn't do anything for her. It was just, it was too late. And I wish, you know, I dearly wish I could have gone back to a week or two weeks before and, and stopped it, you know, stopped him. But I couldn't. It was too late. And, and, and you don't want to be in that position. What did you want to achieve with the podcast, the podcast on grief, which uh, grief, which is called, by the way, Death, a podcast about love, grief and hope? Yeah, I just, because I'm a journalist and, you know, quite kind of nosy and curious about these things, when I had got through the worst of my grief period, I just, it kind of interested me how I had got through that and how other people had treated me. And I don't want to be harsh on other people because... We all do it. Like, it's very hard to deal with someone who's grieving. Mm. But I was kind of in this state where I craved comfort. I wanted people to comfort me, but I was also in pain, so I wanted people to stay away from me. (laughs) And it was kind of like, you know, give me a hug, but back off. And you couple that with people feeling a bit awkward about raising the topic of of Emily or, or talking about Emily. And it was just... It was kind of a difficult situation to be in, and I think... So, so I, I wanted to really examine that in the podcast, like the processes of grief, what, what, what you go through when you're grieving. When, when you first start grieving, it's like this black storm kind of in, envelops you and just and it's like a tornado, something just hurls you around. You don't know what's up or down, what day, is, what day it is. You, you're just confused. And, and it's a really scary place to be, but you learn to slowly get control of your life back. And that takes time and support and then I also wanted to help people who knew someone who was grieving just know what to do, and, and that is, you know, just be there for them. You don't need to console them. You don't need to make things right for them. You don't need to say, it's going to be fine. Just be there, make a cup of tea, sit down, you know, just, just be there for them. You're, you're not going to fix the situation, but you can just help them get through this incredibly difficult journey that, that, that carries on for the rest of your life. You know, I'm, one of the things about my grief is I'm sad that Emily's not here. I still love her a lot. She's still part of my life, just not physically, and that makes me sad that she's not here. But that sadness is part of my 
connection to Emily. You know, I don't want to be not sad that she's not here. I, I'm going to be sad for the rest of my life. But I can live with that. It's, it's fine, if that makes sense. It does. And what would you like people to know about her as we, as we finish up? Uh, you know, I, I'd like... I'd kind of like... You know, she was a really loving, loving girl. And I just... I try and spread that, that love and, and uh, I try and... I try and see the good in people like she did. And, you know, I just, um, as I said in my podcast, when she was born, it was the most incredible moment in my life. And, and the 17 years I had with her were incredible. And that, the joy of having her, the joy of being her father, just, it just outweighs the, 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 the losing her. Mm. And, and, you know, love your kids and hug them and don't take anything for granted. That's the last episode for this season of Crimes NZ. If you haven't heard all of them yet, go back and listen to the previous three seasons for more spine-tingling true crime stories. They're available on the RNZ website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and iHeartRadio. Well, anywhere you find your podcasts. There are still two more seasons to come, so follow us to get a heads up when the new episodes drop. In the meantime, have a listen to some of RNZ's other great podcasts like Black Sheep or Hear Kakano Aho. And you can catch me live on the radio each weekday on the Afternoons program on RNZ National. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.